All you need to do is yell Chaka. Friday, November the 9th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Derrick, Dutch News contributing editor and insufferably bilingual bike meddler, and with me today is my fellow Dutch News contributing editor and grumpy librarian, Molly Quell, and Paul Peters, part-time student, part-time taxi driver, and soon-to-be full-time deep state social media mogul. Yes. Paul, I really, really want you to apply for this job. Uh, a uh, lot. Which job do you want me to apply for? Um, the job of being the official royal tweeter. <laughs> yeah, no, not only the royal tweeter, but for the, for the entire tweet, government. You've got to tweet for Mark Rutte as well, and, yeah. and the king. Yes, It sounds like a dream job to me. It does. It does, yeah. And it also, yeah. It, it, especially if you can also travel with them to, I don't know, the UK and whatever places they're always visiting and making Instagram stories. I would really yeah. love that, yeah. And I think you would be ex- really, really good at it. Me too. And I think it, uh, it, it also pays pretty well. Pretty well. Yeah, yeah. it's over 3,000 euros a month. It's so, so cute uh, that you think that that's good money. Great. Because so you have for for tweeting. Uh, s- it's some because you've never lo- had a real job before. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And I go, and I go straight. You're hopping straight onto the Amsterdam Carousel. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> exactly. But yeah. if you get this position, you have to negotiate with them to be able to come back and do the podcast. This is very important. Yeah, I think I can only come back, and if I defend uh, the the all the cabinet policies, then I would be fine. I think. Yeah. I think that's fine. You could yeah. be the like official sort of defender of. Yes. I mean, in I'm theory, already, I am already doing that. Yeah, so that's, yeah, that's but fine. if it was a, it, what, would you be able to do it if it was a left-wing coalition government? Uh, yeah, sure. You think yeah, so? Yeah, yeah. Okay. As long as you have a guarantee, you can still do the photoshops as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. So yeah. That's, that, that's you're going to have to negotiate really yeah. hard. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Gordon, you are exceptionally uh, dirty today. Um, <laughs> I'm, no, no comment on that. But so, as I was leaving home this morning, um, my bike chain came off, so I had to put it back on. Luckily, I was near the house, so I could go back um, and uh, clean myself up a little bit. So a little my, bit. A lot of my hands are got a bit of bike oil. At least I don't look like I'm going to be turning up in the court to, courtroom in Friesland to defend my. Um, and, uh, <laughs> no, d- you, you do look like you're about to inherit your uncle Tony's yeah. t- mechanic shop. <laughs> and uh, Molly, um, you are a grumpy librarian. What's that all about? I don't know why you put grumpy in here because I'm perpetually grumpy yes it's yeah. like but that, that that makes you perfectly qualified for the role of street librarian that's yeah. true yeah but it would be like the equivalent of you just being saying to Paul like he's going to be a human deep state like media person because it's <laughs> it's just it's just obvious yeah. uh, no we installed a little library in front of our house mm-hmm. um, a mini beeb as they call it in Dutch and I am I've been very excited with the library's comings and goings, and there have been some new books put in, and mm. some books have disappeared. So. And which books have uh, been the first to go? So the fo- <laughs> Uh, all of the all of the copies of De Aventa, which appear to have been burned in a bonfire around the corner. Uh, no, the first book to go was a couple of a copy of uh, Carl Sagan's Cosmos, actually, uh-huh. and then um, there was also a copy of We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson, which disappeared as well. So there's mm. been a number of them, and the magical art of not giving a fuck uh, yeah. appeared in the mini bib yesterday. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, so also contributors. Yes, uh-huh. but Has I have. Gone? I, well, it's already gone because I took it out uh-huh. to give it to a colleague who had been 
thinking about buying the book anyway, so I mm. thought it was like a nice way of the universe. But yes, if you live in Delft and, and you know roughly where I live, you should come by and check out the Mini Beep. And if you live in Delft and don't know where I live, please don't come by my house. <laughs> yeah. Although you can now go around and just try and work out which of the Mini Beebs in Delft is Molly's. The Mini Beeb in Delft, my Mini Beeb is the only all English language books. So I have an agreement with someone who is running a Dutch language Mini Beeb to take out any books that come in in Dutch. And so we're just doing an exchange. If he ah. gets books in English, we exchange them. So like, you're, 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 yeah, you're kind of book crossing. We're book crossing. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, this is a good way to recycle books. I think yeah. so. Yeah. It's a, I think it's a really nice like little like community sort of engagement. All our neighbors have come over to like ask about it and stuff. And I think it's it's kind of fun to see people yeah. like stopping by and looking at it. So. But they almost started to think you are nice. I know it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. you're actually giving things away. And if you want to follow... What are you, the... Sinterklaas? <laughs> uh, yes, because I also have black slaves and beat children <laughs> and snacks. Yeah. If you want to follow the comings and goings of the Mini Beeb, you can follow my book club, which is like sort of sponsoring it on Instagram. It's called the Undercover Book Club. And I'm posting photos on there of all of the books that sort of show up and, and leave. So This podcast contains product placement. It does contain mm. product placement. It actually literally will contain it, product placement later, but this is not At some point quite soon it will, yes. Yeah. It has done in the past as well. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, whatever. We'll take your money. If you're an advertiser, you want to advertise with us, just just send us some money. We'll we'll yeah. advertise anything. Or if you just want to give us money, then right, we right. We'll also too. just accept money. That's yeah. fine. This week, we'll tell you why a Pakistani lawyer has fled to the Netherlands, where you can immerse yourself in Rembrandt's later this year, and why the Red Cross wants to give Romptouristen the red card. We'll also learn why temperatures of 20 degrees in November are nothing to worry about now that nuclear power is on the way back. In our discussion, we'll take the pulse of the Dutch healthcare sector in the wake of the decision to make two hospital operators bankrupt. But first of all, we're going to hand over to Paul for the OPEF of the week. This this could take take it for OPEF of the year, I think. This is a yeah. very strong I, This is a real strong yeah, Because it also it also became international. Yeah, it's all it was all over the place. I woke yeah. up this morning to like yeah. fifty people having sent me this on yeah. Facebook and stuff. Although if it's if we make it OPEF of the year, will it not have to be the OPEF of the year for twenty years ago? Yeah, also that. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, but which point we should say what it is. Yeah. Uh, well yeah, of course. This week's uh, OPEF is about Emil Ratelband, who went to court to demand that his age would officially be cut by twenty years. The Dutch showman and self-styled motivational guru claims that even though he's technically 69 years old, he feels he is 49. And he's uh, quoted saying, in an age where you can legally change your gender and name, why can't I change my age? I'm going to uh, interrupt this all for a moment to bring you a small social justice warrior rant, which is, is that your parents give you your name and I don't think that you should have to be stuck with it. It's a ridiculous assertion. Your and parents also give you your age yeah. in a way, don't they? Yeah, yeah in yeah. a way. Um, <laughs> gender. But your gender, gender is like not an immutable thing that like people seem to get stuck on this idea that there are two genders but if you talk to actual biologists they will tell you that there are there are many more that that even if you are not a transgendered person, there are lots of people who have like chromosomal situations that are different and all well, these kinds of, of things. It's more than gender's a spectrum, isn't it? Rather yeah. than a clear but black and white spectrum. one or the other. Yeah, it but is. there is no there is no discussion about like the day that you were actually born. Like gender is not a thing that is I mean, people assume that gender is like a, a binary, right? You are either a man or a woman and that there's all this like science and biology behind it. And that is like not correct. That the first woman in the Netherlands to have this uh, gender-neutral passport, right, was born as a hermaphrodite. She had sex organs for, of both male and female genitalia. That was the thing that, like, nature produced. This wasn't a discussion about if you feel like you are a man or if you feel like you are a woman. Like, just nature produces this much more complicated gender binary. And yeah. whatever. Send me a bunch of hate mail about it. Good. 
We will. Anyway, please continue with but the yeah. path. But to come back to Emilia Rattlebunt. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> which, which is much more fun than yeah. Molly's very serious rant. That's true. Uh, well, the reason why he wants to reduce his official age is that he hopes that being officially younger will enable him to attract more women on Tinder. So this guy is going to court to ask permission to lie on his Tinder profile, basically. Yeah, that's basically which is just the thing the that everyone yeah, else does. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. But um, um, to give a little bit of background... Yeah, who is this guy, Paul? Who is Emil Rattelband? He is quite famous in the Netherlands, but he's one of these people of which you don't really know why he's famous. He's but famous he's, for being famous, he's famous basically. For being famous, yeah, but in the past, in the 80s and the 90s, he was a positivity guru, and he had written several uh, self-help books, uh, and they were apparently quite popular. Its, catch, its catchphrase is... Chaka! I knew oh, that was oh, coming, that was so coming. I took that's my headphones off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was my Emil Rattebond impression, it was really bad. Uh, but, uh, you know, after his fame... Emil Rattebond's impression of Emil Rattebond is also really that's, bad. That's very true, yeah. But after his fame in the 80s and the 90s, he basically desperately tried to stay in the spotlight. So this is just one of these uh, episodes uh, where he's just trying to, to become famous again. In 2003, he was named the leader of populist party Leva Nederland, after which one of the other party leaders... Fred Teven oh. resigned in protest of disappointment. We need to do a podcast sometime just called Six Degrees of Fred Teven. Yeah, I didn't. I just I just read uh, Emil Rattelband's Wikipedia page and I just found out that there was also a uh, Fred Teven connection. Didn't yeah. even know that. So I this thought, is a good sign about how we really need to start up our our secondary podcast yeah. in the new year yeah, because there's a lot of interesting yeah. connections here. Yeah. And uh, last year, Emil Rattelband converted to Buddhism and he also announced that he was looking for a surrogate mother because he wanted to become a father again. He has seven children already. I just love the idea that Emil Rattelband has so much spare time and spare money that he can pay lawyers to argue this ridiculous case on yeah, his behalf. Yeah. And the court take it seriously. I think it's a very Dutch... Well, I think the fact that the court takes it seriously is good, right? That, yes, like, I do, you I should do. have a functioning judiciary where people like this don't just get, like, laughed yeah. right out of court. But I'm glad that, you know, we exist to mock him mercilessly yes, at least someone is mocking him but because he's ridiculous because he's ridiculous and this story was catched up by uh, international media all over the world the bbc talked about it and uh, mm. uh, cnn as well i believe and uh, yeah so this is it's, this yeah, it was on NPR become, this morning. Uh, a, a international op-ef. i just want to say the biggest op-ef about this is is that all of these people ran with the story and they did not run with the headline, The Lying Dutchman. <laughs> <laughs> Including Dutch news. Including Dutch yeah. news. This yes. is a failure on our part. <laughs> yeah. The lawyer for a Pakistani woman who is acquitted of blasphemy, sparking protests by religious fundamentalists, has fled to the Netherlands. Saif Al-Maluk said he feared for his life in the wake of the Supreme Court decision to acquit Azia Bibi, a Christian woman accused of insulting the Prophet Muhammad because of a lack of evidence after she spent eight years on death row. Meanwhile, the Dutch Foreign Ministry has declined to comment on reports that Bibi herself is headed for the Netherlands. Christian Union pay Joel Vorderwind has told the Dutch media he is sure Bibi is headed for Europe, but could not confirm that the Netherlands is her end destination. So what did this woman do exactly that she spent ages on death row? This story is absurd. Allegedly, she committed blasphemy, which is a capital offense in Pakistan. According to testimony in court, Bibi had brought some water for other field workers and that uh, these women refused to take it, saying they could not take water from the hands of a Christian. An argument broke out and Bibi was accused from blasphemy. This isn't an unusual tactic in places with such laws. Religious minorities are often persecuted in these ways. It's not even the first time it's happened in Pakistan. Yeah, but when the conviction was overturned, there were protests in the streets. This oh, yeah. is a huge it's big deal in Pakistan. huge yeah. protests. And that's why she and her lawyer both yeah, have fled. had to flee for their lives yeah. and it's it's unclear where exactly she's going to end up there's some discussion about whether or not she may end up in the uk that pakistan yeah. is a former commonwealth country so we'll I, see. I think she might have family in the uk as well yeah. i think that's another reason yeah but so. the part of the um 
the funding for this trial was organized through a, a stichting in the Netherlands, a yes. not-for-profit organization in the Netherlands that supports persecuted religious minorities all over the world. So that's why the lawyer, like, had the connection here. So. Yeah, he came initially certainly to the Netherlands because he gave a press conference in the Hague yeah. uh, during the week. Uh, so yeah, where he ends up, uh, yeah. we'll have to see. Well, hopefully they are safe and settled yeah. somewhere. The Dutch Red Cross has launched a campaign to stop people filming accident scenes on their phones and urging them to lend a helping hand instead. The call comes a week after police drew attention to the problem with a message on Facebook where they described how a group of bystanders filmed a man who was being resuscitated on the ground after he collapsed while his wife was standing nearby. The Red Cross said 90% of people found it unacceptable to film an accident scene, but in the words of spokesman Nico Zumont, it seems to have become a kind of reflex to film disturbing scenes, but it can have a huge impact on the people you're filming. Police recently issued fines to 45 motorists who filmed or photographed a serious road accident on the A58 near Ettenlure. And Justice Minister Fed Kopperhaus has also weighed into the row, saying, quote, We need to hold a mirror up to people and say, what do you think you're doing? Krepperhaus has stopped short of saying he'd introduce a ban on the practice, but Christian Democrat MP Madeleine von Thurenberg is going to introduce a bill in Parliament uh, that would outlaw the filming of accident scenes. So in Etelur there were 45 people that were fined for filming the accident, but there were several other uh, cases um, weeks ago where the police uh, fined also these kind of numbers of people that were filming it. So it always seems like if there's an accident on the motorway, the police sent extra officers to the scene to, to find the people who are filming it. Yeah, but I don't know. Maybe the police film it as well and then they... To just to find all the people who are filming but they, 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 and of course they weren't actually fined for filming so that's on the fence but the fact they were actually at the wheel of their car when they were when they were making the films yeah or slow yeah so, oh okay yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah and there were a lot of people that are slowing down on the other side yeah. of the road to fit yeah it's, it's really terrible why do people do this do we know yeah, yeah. As 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 Gordon said, it's some sort of, of reflex yeah. now. If everything happens, if yeah. you walk uh, down the street and you see, I don't know, a swan fighting a cat or something, then you start yeah. filming. Yeah, but a swan fighting a cat is entertaining. Yeah, but yeah, okay, but it's some sort of reflex. Uh, it started to become a reflex to just grab your phone yeah. and film yeah. whatever you encounter. Yeah, you just if you see something dramatic, you just whip out your film. You whip out your phone even before you've actually worked out what's going on. Yeah, and so if you it's know, a if, you see, if you see a building on fire, it's kind of your yeah. first instinct. Yeah, yeah exactly. So. And if it's fun, then it's okay but if it's terrible then you still do it because it's a reflex and yeah of course you shouldn't do it um but, but should this be banned yeah well i think that's where it gets interesting because the same survey by the red cross also said that 68 percent of people said filming scenes was sometimes justified because of course you can use these images yeah. sometimes as evidence and often when there's been an incident one of the first things the police will do is they'll ask for people who've got footage to give it hand it over to them yeah exactly. and if you remember things like the mitch henriquez case where the footage of the, te- the incident taken by bystanders you know contradicted the police version of events so yeah. you can think of a situation where if there's another if there's a ban on on public filming of uh, distressing incidents which seems like a reasonable thing on its own but then if there's the next time there's an incident of police brutality the police can just wander over to people and confiscate their phones and that makes it much harder to hold them to account so the question is do you ban filming or do you ban or so a campaign to make people more aware of the fact that filming is you know often not a, you know socially unacceptable is one thing but actually banning the practice might have some unwanted effects. Yeah, there's been a big push in the U.S. where, of course, we have this ongoing problem with police brutality to encourage people to film altercations between the police and people just to sort of ensure that they're kept kind of honest and that these the filmings of many of these events, these videos have been used as evidence in court and have there's some evidence that shows is like sort of deterring the police from acting in brutal ways in public because they're concerned about the, like, backlash from it. So I think it's a really tough 
like I think you said, it's really tough, I think, to write a law that says don't film victims of car accidents, but it's okay to film other things where we may want to like have access yeah, to this Yeah, sometimes it's later. not clear at the time the incident exactly what's going on. So then the other thing is I can say, you know, you should help out rather than film a phone, but very often there's not a lot you can do. You know, yeah. it takes one person can phone the emergency services. After that, unless you're actually trained in first aid, yeah. you haven't really got anything to do except yeah. get out of the way. Yeah, yeah then... we, um, we had a, an incident a few weeks ago where there was someone behind our house who was like passed out on the ground and... People had called. There were some some like teenagers who work at a pizza place around the corner who had called the police and were sort of like standing there waiting for them to come. We were kind of watching this out the back window, and eventually we went out and like took the dog out. And the police are just around the corner, so I had gotten very annoyed that they like hadn't gotten here in time. But I mean, you know, I'm a well-educated person. Like I have a first aid certificate. Like my partner does as well. But we were not super comfortable like trying to see what the situation was. I mean, if this was a person who was like passed out drunk and maybe could be violent or like, you know, if they had had some sort of like traumatic injury and you move them, you can make the situation worse. So like, you know, we called the police again, basically to be like, okay, we're not teenagers and we're annoyed that the police haven't responded this quickly. But beyond that, like, I'm not sure what, what it was that we could have done to help. So I think it's hard to say, yeah, you should be offering sort of some sort of bystander intervention. Yeah. I kind of think the problem is not so much that people are filming though that is, is, you know, quite a thing to be confronted with but when people actually go and put the and footage they're on it. they're posting mm-hmm. it you know there, there, yeah. there was somebody interviewed into false count this week who said that he learned his girlfriend had been in an accident because he saw the saw footage on footage facebook online. and that yeah. kind of thing does seem right out of order and maybe there yeah. should be a way of you know um finding people do that but don't the they have stricter filming. rules of this for in the uk i thought they had like stricter rules about this stuff that i think there are rules about who you can identify in yeah. films but um but uh, i don't know off the top of my head yeah yeah, but on the other hand, if there is an accident or someone has filmed it or put it online, uh, very often media take over these images yeah, as well. So there's yeah. also a role of, of the media to to yeah. hear that they shouldn't use these kind of images. Or yeah, at least if it's not, if it's if it's uh, uh, clearly not. Uh, well, that harks back to an older debate actually. It goes back to before the days of you know um, smartphones and social media when people you know would offer paparazzi photos to to the newspapers yeah. and uh, you know that, that, that's kind of a, so it's the, a just an update of that really. Yeah. It's, a, it's the same old discussion. Yeah, yeah. should the media accept um, yeah um, footage from bystanders? It's often much better than what you can get. Yeah, because of course people because are there, but the a spot. professional photographer yeah. may not is not just coincidentally at the same place at the same time. Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a challenge. But I mean, like, don't be a jerk and like film people i I mean i I think if you were if it was your girlfriend or your partner or you that was laying on the side of the road it would be really horrific to have those sort of images be posted on twitter and that kind of stuff and like just don't be an asshole yeah Yeah. don't be a dick yeah unless you're a lawyer unless you're a lawyer Yeah. yeah According to Klaas Dijkhoff, reintroducing nuclear energy is the best way for the Netherlands to reach its clean air goals set in the Paris Agreement. Nuclear power is relatively clean and does not produce CO2, Dijkhoff said in current affairs show Nieuwsuur on Monday. He added that he does not see how the targets can be reached without nuclear energy and that if it's up to him they can start building nuclear power plants straight away. The VVD leader's plan comes a day after TV show Zondag met Lubach addressed the topic and host Arjen Lubach talked about the taboo around nuclear energy and the relatively inefficient methods of producing renewable energy. Coalition parties ChristenUnie and D66 said they do not back the idea. D66 leader Rob Jette said he will look seriously at every proposal but that he is convinced there are wiser choices than nuclear energy. According to experts it will take at least 12 years to build a new nuclear power plant. The Netherlands currently has only one nuclear power plant which stands in Bosle, 
with double S in the municipality of Borsele with one S in Zeeland and three nuclear research institutes. I found this out yesterday that the Gemeente Borsele is, uh, is written with one S and the village where, which, where it's named after is written with two S's and Didn't it annoys person... me very, very much. <laughs> Didn't you post something on Twitter about that like two weeks ago? Please, it... please continue banging your finger yes. grumpily against the table. <laughs> yeah, I, I tried to really... make as, as It's sad we have possible. no video of this because Paul is like very <laughs> emphatically pounding yes. his I don't, don't not... remember that tweet. Did I tweet about this? I've got a feeling you did, yeah. Oh. I'm, I'm, I'm very... I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm never, not sure who else you... would tweet about this. Yeah, that's so true. It yeah, so it kind of sounds like I would tweet about yeah. this. I've rarely seen you so passionate about things. There are two neighborhoods just around the corner from where I live in The Hague. One is called Out Eikendownen. The other one is called New Eikendownen, but Eikendownen is spelt differently. Yeah, this is th this is also one of these <laughs> curious things that you have a a village which is called New Fossemeer, and then there is no Old Fossemeer. So where why is it called New This and not Old? It's it really annoys me. There are three towns named Audacha in Friesland, and it is extremely confusing because I had to go there three weeks ago. Like Friesland is not that big. Come up with some more creative names <laughs> for your cities, guys. Yeah, it's annoying. Why why, do, why are we talking about villages in Friesland when know. we could be talking about nuclear energy? Yeah. So nuclear energy. Are we are we for? I'm a back? I'm a pro nuclear energy me person. Me too. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Have you ever toured the uh, reactor that's here in Delft? No, but you I should do. It. It's, it's a cool can you, tour. Can you just go there? Yeah, you, you have to arrange to do the tour as part of like a thing ahead of time. Like you can't just show up and be like, take me on a tour. But you can go and you can like basically walk all the way up top on the top of like the reactor and like oh. look down and see it. And see the actual uranium. Yeah, because they have like, I don't know how many feet of water it is, three meters or something like of water. And basically by the time any radiation like comes up to the top it's so like dissipated that basically you can just swim in the top of the reactor and oh, it's really? like not oh, any... i really want to swim in the yeah they're not going to let you swim but they but say that you, anyway. you could swim yeah uh, that's nice. that would be the off half of the week if you jumped into the reactor pool <laughs> if you ever want to be the off half of the week paul here's your way to do it I, I, yeah but the downside of course is that you produce nuclear energy that will be radioactive for the coming thousands of years. Yeah, but we'll, we'll all be dead by then anyway. Yeah, dead, so we're all going to be dead because of yeah, climate change, which is our next story. Yes. Climate change seems to be a very slow and painful way to die, so let's just go for a nuclear explosion. Yeah, it's yeah at least everyone will die instantly. It's more efficient. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. true. I mean, I think, like, on a slightly more serious note, that if we were taking seriously nuclear energy as a way to produce energy, we would also come up with ways to deal with nuclear waste better. I mean, I think part of the problem is, is that... That was always a problem, wasn't it? Back in the early, uh, old days of nuclear power, we never found an acceptable, safe, clean way to deal with nuclear waste. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but they keep coming up with new ways to get oil out of the ground because this is the way that we, like, you know, like, this yeah, is where the research goes, yeah. yeah. I mean, in the, in the piece of Arjen Lubach, he said that with one nuclear energy plant, you can, you can produce as much electricity as thousands of 200 meter tall yeah. uh, wind, wind turbines. Bells, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, but still, there are a lot of problems with it. Uh, yeah. But still, we did, we did still have Chernobyl. And, and, yeah, and he also yeah, but that was run by the Russians. Like, of course this is a problem. Come yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, but the Russians the, are still around. Yeah, but the, <laughs> then don't let them have nuclear power. We can all agree on well, that. I have to say, the, the, the most nuclear energy is produced by the French. Do we really want the French to be in charge with this as well? I mean, they definitely are going to have enough regulations to cover any sort of issue. So. That's true. As the only thing I would be worried like, about is that they don't As long as the uranium will not strike. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So guys, uh, are we enjoying the weather today? Yes. Can we all agree? Can we all agree that global warming is pretty great? Yes. <laughs> 
Tuesday set a record this week as the warmest November 6th after the temperatures hit 17.1 degrees at the DeBilt Measuring Station near Utrecht. In the south of the country, it was even warmer. The normal temperature in November is around 11 degrees, but don't worry, the cold and rain will be back this weekend. Yay! No. KNMI is forecasting a high of 12 degrees with a strong chance of rain. Excellent. Yes. Look, and, global and warming is going to kill us. We've already agreed on this, right? Like, you might as well get a nice sunny October and November out of it. I fully agree with this. Yeah. And why is the 17.1 degrees at the build the record temperature and not the higher temperature in the south of the Netherlands? Uh, because the Dutch have this insanely odd recording system for temperatures where it only matters at De Bilt, which is near Utrecht. Yes. Yeah. No, because I the am. rest of the country does not matter. <laughs> just in, just in case you were wondering, the rest of the country does not matter. Well, in the case of Limburg, everybody agrees. I had to kill a mosquito this week, and I think that's ridiculous. To have to be, still have mosquitoes flying around your house in early November. Yeah. This country used to be a swamp, and we spent 300 years draining it, and now it's turning back into yeah, a swamp. Yeah, you're because doing of so much warming. better than a. Are you America saying is? we should drain the swamp? I'm saying we, we did a great job of draining the swamp, and now the swamp is, is, is encroaching on us once again. Maybe you can ask for help from the American president on yeah. draining the swamp. He's doing Make terrible the Netherlands job. dry again. Make the Netherlands dry A nervous Ajax came away from Benfica with a draw in midweek to stay on course for the knockout stages of the Champions League. Serbian striker Dusan Tadic's equaliser and hour into the game brought relief all round, not least to goalkeeper Andre Anana, who was badly at fault for the Portuguese side's opening goal. But Anana went on to redeem himself with a last-minute point-blank save that kept the scores level, and it all means that the Amsterdam club will go through to the second round for the first time in 13 years if they can win either of their remaining games, away to AEK Athens or at home to Bayern Munich. Meanwhile, it was another agonising night in Europe for PSV Eindhoven. They went 1-0 up after a minute against Tottenham Hotspur, thanks to Luke de Jong's header, but then spent most of the match defending and eventually conceded two late goals to Harry Kane. And that means PSV are out of the competition with two matches still to play. Yeah, that was pretty inevitable, wasn't it? Yeah, I think when he saw the game, PSV just uh, you know, they're in a very difficult group, and then it's not quite up to the standard of uh, of the top European clubs. And ultimately, they yeah, it, was, it was kind of inevitable. Yes, and it's been a big week for Epke Zonderland. No, it? no, no, I'm doing this one. Oh, okay. Are you, Gordon, do, are you doing Epke Zonderland? I wish. Gordon, <laughs> tell me about the hot guy. There was there was well, there was sports related hot guy news, and this is the only reason I care about sports. You know he's from Friesland, right? I don't care. I, I mean, yeah. He's Have you seen how they breed men in Friesland? Oh boy. Yes, Epke Zondland, the 32-year-old gymnast, won the world high bar title for the third time this week. But that's not the only thing he was celebrating because he also became a father for the first time. He's one of a clutch of male sports stars who become dads in the last month. That also includes two members of the Olympic speed skating team who were celebrating new arrivals. Curiously, nine months after the Winter Games in Pyeongchang. Funny how that works. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> That's probably a coincidence. And um, have Feyenoord shed any light on their uh, abandoned match uh, of the weekend? Because uh, there were some problems with the, with the light. Yeah, there was problems with the floodlights. Where yeah. yeah, Feyenoord were playing the Sunday evening game, and it, um, after forty five minutes, no, after forty five seconds, the lights went <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, but just the game. Say. Yeah. Um, so uh, against FFV Fenlo, um, and referee Bas Nijhuis uh, called the players back into the changing room. They, the technicians, had a bit of a fiddle around under the desk, and there were some pictures of it on social media. And eventually, they realised they couldn't find the fault, and uh, everyone had to go home. So yeah. they watched. 45 seconds of football and <laughs> Fefe Fenlo later posted a tweet uh, of the highlights which is just a black uh, square black screen <laughs> <laughs> which funny. was quite good at least That's they have funny. a sense of humour about <laughs> yeah, it I yeah. guess uh, the, the, the match was played in the Kuip 
the yes. final stadium. But uh, I, I believe this week there, there will be a final decision on what uh, will be the future of the car. Yeah, the background to this is that the supporters were, had banners up in the stadium because final want to move uh, into a new stadium because the cow is uh, quite old and also not big enough really for European football or not if you want to make any money from it anyway. Um, so quite a lot of the fans were against this. They held up banners saying, please keep the cow And of course, immediately then the lights failed. Yeah. So some people on social media said uh, were kind of uh, suggesting was, this was some kind of conspiracy to kind of you know, sabotage the stadium yeah, yeah. and to make send the a message for, we really need to a send a message stadium. that our stadium yeah. is really old and antiquated but yeah. um, the stadium yeah. director Jan von Merwijk said no it was just uh, sheer bad luck and he described the incident as quote every stadium director's worst nightmare <laughs> which suggests that stadium directors don't have very much of an imagination <laughs> Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, the supporters really don't want to get rid of the of the old cap. No, they like they the atmosphere really of the, the cap. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and it's in a nice and it's of course in Feyenoord in the suburb of Rotterdam, which yes. uh, gives the club its name as well. Yeah. Um, when so I know the running joke on this podcast is that I don't pay attention to sports, but that's not totally true because I am a large fan of American football, and I am from well, my parents are from the Philadelphia area, which means I have to cheer for the Eagles basically by law, or my family would disown me. And uh, they also got a new stadium a few years ago, and there was a lot of drama about getting rid of the old stadium because uh, Eagles fans are notoriously terrible people, and we have done things including throwing snowballs at Santa Claus. And the previous <laughs> stadium was the only NFL stadium to have an actual jail in it to deal with the unrowdy oh, fans. Really? Wow. And people were very disappointed the new stadium was not going to have a jail in it to deal with the unrowdy fans. But did the Philadelphia fans uh, once block the highway? Uh, yeah, and destroyed really? buildings and tore down statues so they, and have done all kinds of They need to show stuff. up this morning at the Leeuwarden Courthouse. Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. I mean, to, to wrap all this up, the, the, they, they've now discovered the fault. It was a broken transformer in the stadium. So mm. it's now been fixed. Yeah, okay. No conspiracy here. Don't think so, no. And the, the match has been rescheduled for the 6th of December, which is the day after St. Nicholas. Oh, yeah. which is actual St. Nicholas Day. Yeah. Yes, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Not to be confused with St. Martin's Day, which is on Sunday. Yeah, November yeah. 11th. Yeah. The Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam will mark the 350th anniversary of Rembrandt's death by putting all the works of the Dutch master in its collection on show. The Older Rembrandt's exhibition will run from February 15th to June and will include all 22 paintings, 60 drawings and 300 prints by Rembrandt the museum has in its possession. The New Rijksmuseum holds the world's largest collection of Rembrandt paintings, including the world-famous The Night Watch. Experts estimate that Rembrandt painted 300 paintings in his life. Other museums that uh, own a large number of Rembrandt paintings are the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York with 11 paintings, the Mauritshuis in The Hague with also 11 paintings, and the Hermitage in St. Petersburg with 8 paintings. The Rijksmuseum chose to only display their own work and no paintings from other museums. I was really surprised to hear that apparently they store a lot of Rembrandts away in their... Uh, in their depots. Yeah, I was going to say, it was going through my head, how many of the Rembrandts do they have do they not have on display? Already? Yeah, I think, they have, a few. I think they have all the paintings on display, but right. not all the drawings. Right, and, okay. Uh, I also read that they have uh, a couple of thousand prints by Rembrandt, but they are really um, vulnerable for, for daylight and yeah. stuff like that, so they store them away. Okay, that makes sense. But, I mean, these drawings that are uh, pretty good quality, you can just hang them, right? Mm -hmm. You can just... Well, I mean, I don't know if you've been to the Van Gogh museum the van gogh museum <laughs> and they have like the first several floors are all of his like old work and old sketches and what i hear from people is they're like well this is boring we just really want to see the potato mm, eaters so yeah. they skip a couple of floors and just go straight to the top where the good stuff is yeah that so could be but if you're people... a museum you're for everybody so yeah. if there are people are, are interested in these in these drawings and just open a floor or a room with all these drawings yeah but then just... conceivably you have to take some other works down so i think i mean i suspect yeah, that the rembrandt be. has tons of stuff in storage right or yeah. the exactly. has tons of 
stuff you, in storage. The Rice Museum just has so much stuff generally that yeah. it, it has to, even a lot of the good quality stuff just doesn't get on the walls. Mm. Yeah. It needs a whole wall for the night watch. I mean, come on. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah and uh, also interesting, all these museums, they have these enormous depots with thousands and thousands of, of artworks and uh, Boymans van Beuningen is building their new depot and uh, they're going to use it as a exhibition yeah. uh, building. So mm. they're just going to, you know, hang some of the stuff they have in their depots yeah. and then yeah. a week later they hang something else. Yeah, there. but that's because Boymans van Beuningen are going to shut for seven years, aren't they, while they're doing a revamp. So yeah. that's a long time. Yeah, yeah. very long time. Not so as long as the Rijksmuseum. That was like, what, 10, 12, 10 years, 10 yeah. years yeah. yeah. Even though it was planned only two years. Yeah. We'll be asking if hospitals should be allowed to go bankrupt after this word from our sponsor. Are you lacking clarity about your life or career? Do you need help setting and reaching your goals? Did you consider getting a coach? Coach.net is bringing the help of professional coaches to you like never before. That's K-O-A-C-H dot net. Whether you are looking for a life or a career or a health or a leadership coach, now you can find and book an accredited and experienced coach directly and easily. And all of our coaches offer a free session, so you can meet the coach and discuss your needs directly and privately. Start the change. Book a free session with a coach of your choice today at coach.net. That's K-O-A-C-H dot net. Health Minister Bruno Brahms was strongly criticised last week for his handling of the closure of a hospital in Amsterdam and a healthcare operator in Flevoland. Hundreds of patients had to be moved at short notice after the owners filed for bankruptcy and a court ordered the facilities to be shuttered. Brahms admitted that he was unaware of the scale of the problems facing the hospitals, but he came under fire during a debate in Parliament for his earlier comments that it wasn't his job to protect piles of bricks. Opposition parties called on Browns to guarantee that there will be no repeat of the scenes which saw ambulances turning up to take patients out of a hospital to other facilities and medical staff working unpaid to keep emergency units open. The Cabinet has since pledged to ensure that basic and acute care remains available in the affected areas, but the whole episode has raised serious questions about the much-admired Dutch healthcare system. So what, what actually like happened here? There's like sort of two somewhat tangentially related hospital closures, right? Well, they're quite closely related because they're owned by the same uh, by the same people, the MC Group, yeah. um, um, which we'll get into a bit later. But basically, the, the, it was the Slotervaart Hospital in Amsterdam, which had been running at loss for several years and had uh, long-standing financial problems, and the Eisselmeer Group of seven hospitals, which uh, basically covers the whole province of Flevoland. Um, and uh, on the 23rd of October, so just over two weeks ago, they applied for protection from creditors so they could pay their bills a bit later. That's often a warning sign that a company's in serious financial difficulties. Not usually a good, <laughs> um, good sign. But it was still a surprise that uh, the, the, they then, just two days later, um, the owners then went back to court and actually applied for bankruptcy and that uh, then effectively when the court granted the bankruptcy order, the hospitals had to shut by the end of the week effectively. Wow. Uh, except they didn't, of course, because the staff carried on turning up for work even though they weren't being paid any longer. Yeah. yeah. And then inpatients had to be found beds elsewhere, outpatients were transferred to other clinics. It was all very chaotic and um, yeah, quite distressing, obviously, for the people involved. Even if you're, never, never mind if you're an inpatient in a, you know in an intensive care ward and you have to be now taken by an ambulance to another hospital. Yeah, but even, does, that, does, that, does that result into serious health consequences or dangerous well, it can or risks? Yeah. I mean, it's you obviously are, risky. Well, on the face of it, you know, it's, it's always risky to move patients. Well, and it, it's almost, it was more complicated in Flavilon because basically all of the hospitals shut down with this because there were seven yeah. hospitals there and that was like a, that was a pretty substantial number of hospitals for a small, relatively small province and population. So, I mean, it's a bit mad that like, you know, these people had to be transported 
you know, fair, some, in, in some cases, fairly large distances to be mm. able to go to find somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of uh, you know, un- unwanted consequences. And there was one patient that was mentioned in a lot of the papers that he was going through chemotherapy and he was taken to the wrong hospital um, oh, because of wow. all the confusion involved. So, yeah. you know, he obviously had to be there to find another clinic to administer his chemotherapy, which is quite urgent. And, and know, also, who's going to find these uh, these, these yeah. other locations? Are yeah, you going exactly. to have to do it yourself or is there someone else who's doing it? Well, the staff, I think, took on the job of uh, relocating the patients or yeah. reassigning the yeah. patients. But even then, obviously, there's potential for things to go wrong with the paperwork. Yeah, and just the fact you know that you go to you know it's obviously a very important intimate thing in your life when you're going through something like cancer treatment suddenly be told you're going to go to a different hospital in another town with a with an oncologist you've never met before yeah. you're already stressed enough about the fact you're you've got cancer yeah. and to have this happen on top of on top of you just out of the blue is you know is is a pretty awful thing yeah i know from um having to go visit my father-in-law uh, who was in the hospital last month that you know they they went to the hospital that was closest to their house and it was somewhat convenient at least to go to be able to see him and he was in the hospital for a while but i mean could you imagine if you know these f- hospitals in utrecht closed down and now if you wanted to go see your husband or your father every day you had to travel to amsterdam or something i mean it's really like yeah, yeah. it's a, that's a serious strain to put on people who are yeah. in long-term care exactly yeah. yeah and you you know you build just the fact that you build up a relationship of trust with your, the with your care and provider the doctors and, and nurses, all these you know, things, and again yeah. if you're going through having any experience of going of you know having you know being supporting someone who went through cancer treatment and the fact you know you really get to know your oncologist very yeah. well and you sort of trust their judgment and then suddenly you're pitched into a different a different environment with with, with new people you've never met before yeah. it's it's you know it, it's a really hard thing to it's hard enough you know the best of times and this is definitely not the best of times yeah, yeah. and it was made worse i think in Slotter, in the slaughterhouse hospital by the fact that this is in sort of a poorer more immigrant heavy neighborhood so now not only are they dealing with people who are you know dealing with all these intimate and complicated medical problems but you know a number of them may not speak dutch or they may be like recent additions to the Dutch medical system so you sort of have developed some sort of hopefully some kind of trust and re- repertoire with your um, with your doctor and then to like have that all taken away and have to start over in the midst of all this chaos just seems yeah. just so awful yeah, and yeah. Th- this is a, this is a poor neighborhood so a lot of people cannot really afford to travel uh, these distances to other hospitals, hospitals. Yeah, it's, 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 it's often logistically difficult you, know, you yeah. might not have a car you might have to take the bus yeah, yeah. yeah exactly uh, so what were the problems with these hospitals how long did these problems uh, or how long ago did they arise or what what, what exactly happened? Yeah, so basically they ran out of money, obviously. Um, but that's they're, they're, how bankruptcy but, works. That's how bankruptcy oh, works. Really? Sure. Yeah. Um, and they were both uh, running at a loss. Um, in the case of the Sotofab Hospital, there have been regular stories over the years um, that it was uh, you know, not pro- operating profitably. I mean, the, the problems went back actually to when it was uh, first opened in the 60s. It was supposed to be an additional hospital for Amsterdam because they thought the population of Amsterdam was going to grow. Actually, it shrank. And so it was mm-hmm. kind of um, surplus to requirements. But for the fact that, as we said, it was a hospital in an area um, with uh, quite a lot of um, poor and migrant families and it built up a very good relationship with its kind of constituency. The Ayasomir group uh, had a slightly different problem. It ran up very large debts with the health insurers until it reached the point where basically the insurers said they weren't going to provide the funding anymore because um, often the way that uh, treatment for medical or the payment of tr- medical treatment works is that the insurers will pay up front and then reclaim the costs. And effectively they said we're not we're not going to carry on supplying these upfront payments because we're not getting the money back. So the MSA group which ran the hospitals at that point it was in such heavy debts that it just couldn't repay uh, repay the loans or repay the um, the money it owed to the insurers, which is about three, somewhere between three and five million. Um, so that's been building up for years. Well, yeah. no, no, that's building up for about eighteen months. It was quite oh, okay. over quite a short period. Um, and they filed for bankruptcy, and the two thousand five hundred staff found themselves uh, out of work. And the investigative website, Follow the Money, reported that uh, a lot of the problem came from the fact that the Isomir hospitals had brought in supplies of a cancer medicine from Germany.
Germany, even though the health insurers were no longer covering the cost um, because it was brought okay. in from abroad and it didn't fit in. It didn't mm. have a sort of... It's very complicated, but it wasn't registered in the Dutch healthcare system any longer, basically. The stock cost between three and five million euros, and obviously that left a huge black hole in the finances. And uh, this carried on for about 16 months before they finally transferred it to wow. um, another cancer treatment that was uh, covered by the Dutch health insurers. But the owners knew, or certainly should have known, that from, I think, January the 1st, 2017, the insurers were no longer going to cover the cost of this drug. Because um, the hospital had also founded a, a separate co uh, company to buy all these medicines or something. They yeah, had all this, sorts of uh, weird constructions. Um, yeah, this is another thing that followed the money um, uh, raised. Was that they raised a lot of questions about the role of uh, Luke de Winter, who is the owner of the uh, MC Group. Um, and he'd set up a separate company with to, to buy this drug from Germany. Um, originally, ironically, as a cost-saving measure, because actually they, because they, they outsourced it and then sort of bought it back. They didn't have to prepare the drugs on site anymore. So that meant they didn't have to pay staff to do that work. It was all outsourced and then brought in. So they said, actually, although the drug itself is more expensive from Germany, um, the actual, on, on balance, they made a cost saving. But of course, when they, that, that all depended on the insurers putting up the money for the drug. I mean, the insurers uh, changed the rules and... Yeah, did, didn't do that surreptitiously. They, they said quite clearly, we, we are no longer funding this drug. Mm. Uh, they did, they carried on buying it anyway, and that's how they built up the debt. The but hospitals should have known that. Uh, the hospitals should have known, but obviously there is a real question of um, conflict of interest by the owner of the hospitals because he also he was also it had a stake in the company that was buying the drug oh. for the hospital. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's all quite it's a really messy, uh, messy yeah, story. It's yeah. very messy. The more you look at it, the more story gets. But again, it brings back the question of how a hospital managed to get in trouble by doing the business of buying medicines to tricks to treat sick people. Yeah. So my question, I think, Gordon, is is why don't they have some sort of you know if so you know they have agreed to have private hospitals in this country, right? Like a lot of the healthcare system is privatized. Obviously, it's quite different. Like in the UK, where you come from, where you have the National mm. Health Service, but you would think that you would have some rules and regulations around you know what happens if if hospitals are going to go out of business or health insurers are going to go out of business, right? I mean, if they're private companies, there are chances even, you know, say without mismanagement problems for them to, you know, just, just go out of business for all sorts of reasons. And, you know, how does the government not have regulations put in place for exactly when this happens? I mean, how can the answer be we declare bankruptcy on Monday and all the patients have to be gone by Friday? Mm. Yeah, and I think this has been dominated the debate in um, Parliament and between the political parties on this because obviously, as you say, the Dutch healthcare system, for better or for worse, and there's lots of discussion about that, is is basically um, in private hands and it's run and, and the health insurers particularly uh, take the money from the patients, so they have they're kind of the paymasters. Effectively, they have a huge amount of power and ultimately it's a decision by the insurers not to fund uh, these hospitals anymore that led to them declaring bankruptcy. But as you say, there's very little government oversight and the health minister sort of said initially that he'd been caught by surprise, he didn't see this coming at all. And the question is why? Why did the government not know and why wasn't it able to intervene? Because actually we discovered in the subsequent weeks that uh, there were definitely signals coming out um, from that the, the, these um, these hospitals were in long-term, or certainly in the case of Slotifact, uh, long-term financial distress and that um, they'd been put under increased um, supervision by the inspectors and that memos had gone to the ministry in, uh, in uh, um, as far back as July warning that there were potential consequences. And yet the minister still said that right up to the minute, the point when bankruptcy was declared, he wasn't he didn't appreciate the severity of the problem. Which again, Even though they, they did have some warnings, but they didn't uh, yeah. assess it quite well enough. Yeah, but yeah. I think nobody actually sort of ran up a red flag and said, actually, yeah. these these hospitals are in serious distress. And also, there was no seemingly no contingency plan for what happens when the hospital goes out of business. Because if yeah. you decide Which to have seems a really weird. Yeah, yeah, if you decide to have a privately funded healthcare system, fair enough. But you've got to accept that as this is the point that I think Sibon Buma made 
during the week at the uh, CDR Party Conference. You know, health care is not just any old business. You know, you're caring for sick and vulnerable people. And you can't just have a situation where a hospital can just go bankrupt in the same way that, you know, a company producing Christmas cards goes bankrupt. It's got very different consequences. And why isn't there some kind of decommissioning plan you can have to make sure that patients still get treatment and medical staff still get paid? And if that means that you have to put a bit more public money into it and there's a bit more intervention supervision from the government, surely that's not too controversial. Given all these... Given all these developments, should there also be a financial health inspector that oversees all the financial books and all the yeah the funding of, of, of hospitals? Yeah, that because might the, be a good idea. The yeah. private health insurance companies have like this obligation, right, to put money back into a pot, essentially. So if you know if your healthcare, if your health insurance provider, if your aura or whatever company you have is goes out of business, then like there is a pool of money put inside in reserve, so that if I you know if my healthcare insurance company goes out of business today and I I get hit by a car and have to go to the hospital. There is like a regulation that says, no, you have to put this money back so that you can cover these sorts of things, right? I mean, I don't understand how they don't have this for hospitals. It yeah. seems really obvious. Yeah, there's a reserve fund for the insurers, yeah. which they're legally obliged to have, as you say, so that, to make sure that nobody is ever left without insurance cover. Um, but yeah, there's no such, there doesn't seem to be anything of that kind to make sure that uh, an actual healthcare provider, if that gets into trouble, uh, doesn't suddenly have to shut down in a, in a very short space of time. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that uh, Bruno Brown's uh, suggested is that uh, is that if, if this if this kind of thing happens again and if the company that runs the hospital gets into difficulties it should have an obligation to actually tell the authorities sooner so that the government is aware and can take steps to yeah which mm-hmm. which also seems like a bit of a no-brainer it does yeah, yeah and you wonder have to wonder why it didn't happen in the first place and i think kind of maybe when they set up this private healthcare system back in 2006 and in, in the intervening time certainly with the, the faith of day the you know the pro-business party in charge the, the attitude and mentality has very much been just leave the market alone let the free market just take care of it and everything will be fine. And obviously there are always risks attached to that. So how do you mitigate that risk? And I think what we've discovered in the last couple of weeks is that there aren't very good, there are no systems really for mitigating the risk of a hospital going bankrupt, which is what you will, a risk you will always have if you have a privately run healthcare system. Yeah. Are there other hospitals in the country that are like in financial straits? Have there been more that's come out of this? Um, well, trial reporting, yeah, that was interesting because initially in the first couple of days, the minister said we weren't aware of this and we don't believe there's any other hospital in this situation. But now actually in the counting group, has done an audit of about 14 hospitals it says they're in um, in financial have got bad financial practices and there are two hospitals in particular the Amstel Land Hospital in Amstel Fane so again quite close to Amsterdam um, I don't know if they've had to absorb any of the patients from Slotifar it's quite possible and the Zouderland Hospital in Sittard uh, Gelein which is in Limburg they're also in serious financial difficulty so yeah potentially yeah, you can't rule out this happening again certainly now it's happened once yeah yeah and uh, there was a debate in the Tweede Kamer. Uh, what what was what was said in this debate? Uh, yeah, so obviously the opposition parties uh, were very, you know, went in very hard on this, particularly obviously the Socialist Party, the SPA, yeah. because they had this big election campaign promise, you might remember, to set up um, a national, to, 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 yeah. to abolish the whole competitive health insurance system, set up a Zorgfonds. So the, the leader of the party, Liliana Marijnissen, said Browns had been like a doctor watching his patient die and uh, while he was uh, getting busy uh, sorting out the funeral arrangements. Oh, it's very intense. Yeah, that's very kind of floral language, but, uh, you know, it's obviously it's an opportunity for the opposition to, you know... Um, the way that Browns handled it initially, you know, he was criticised especially for just being very kind of cold and bureaucratic about this whole thing. And he was saying that you know it's not my job to look after piles of bricks, not appreciating that these piles of bricks are places where people, yeah. you know, get life-saving treatment. Yeah. So there, there's kind of a very emotional attachment from the patients and also from the staff as well. Um, Pefidia uh, MP Liliana Plaman uh, accused Browns of standing by and watching and doing nothing. And then when things went wrong, he uh, stuck his head in the sand. And of course, the Pefidia chipped in as well. They said the minister should make guarantees that these events would never 
never happen again. Um, but also the coalition partners were critical of uh, Bruno Brands as well. Um, uh, Sibon Bumas, who we just mentioned, uh, he, he was he mentioned he brought up the subject at the CDR party conference. Said that these events were indicative of how the liberal profit mentality is not always uh, appropriate. And he said bankruptcy shouldn't be a stress test for healthcare. Um, and the Christian Union leader Kertjan Segers, um, who's usually quite a kind of conciliating figure within the coalition, uh, you know, stood up in Parliament and said, "How was it that even the minister couldn't see this uh, these problems uh, coming down the road yeah, towards him?" I mean, that's a valid question. That's a valid yeah, question. Yeah, very much. Um, yeah, I hope that uh, um, you know everybody seems to be very critical about this whole situation, and I uh, can only hope that all the parties will you know join together and find a solution that will never happen again. Yeah, that was, of course the implication is that that's going to mean more public money is going to get into the uh, healthcare system. So the government will have to have some kind of more interventionist role and uh, potentially perhaps t- take on some responsibility for for bailing out or you know or, or making sure that there is contingency funding for hospitals in this situation. I think the point's been made a lot over the weeks. Why could the government bail out the banks when they crashed the economy ten years ago, and yet they can't bail out a hospital which is actually looking after sick people? Yeah, I mean it seems to me that ho- you know medical care is one of these things where even if you get pretty stringent, like sort of pro-business, pro-small-l liberal kind of people who think that the government should not be involved in the economy. It's You're really hard-pressed to find someone who should say, yeah, we should just let hospitals go bankrupt and like let the market sort it out. I mean, I think you would, you're going to be, even in the Veve Day, I, I haven't really heard a whole lot of like defense of this, right? It's not like Mark Ritz has been out there being like, well, you know, this is what we need in order to have a booming economy. I mean, this is like, it seems pretty conciliatory, I think. So I suspect that we're going to see some changes and whether that's more public money investment or more regulation that kind of prevents this from happening. I'm not sure. Hopefully a bit of both. But mm. yeah, I mean, yeah. they really need to do something yeah. to intervene yeah. here. Is there some indication that the government is planning on Know, doing something that uh, this will never happen again, or they what, what are they doing about this? Is they, there... I don't think they've come out with any uh, really concrete measures as yet. I mean, it is only two weeks ago that this happened, and I think they're still sort of reeling from the shock a bit. I mean, it's only um, Bruno Browns has come out with this one measure, which is that uh, there should be more uh, the operators of healthcare um, facilities should be should be obliged to actually tell um, the government in good time that they're getting into trouble. So, the, but but what actual steps he takes? I mean, he said as well at one point that he he wanted to make sure that there would still be um, uh, emergency healthcare available in Flavorland, but then freely admitted he had no idea exactly how he was going to do that. Oh, They're right, still yeah. kind of working on the uh, yeah, the, the, coming up with plans on the hoof at the moment. Yeah. But in the long term, yeah, they're, they're going to I think have to do something to make sure that uh, this is uh, that that where hospitals do get into trouble, that, that this isn't the result. Yeah, yeah I mean, hospitals steps, it's not acceptable. Hospitals are a hard thing I think to leave to the the market, right? Because most places you don't need more than one, right? Like, I mean, Delft is a population of 100,000 people. We have one hospital. It's not like a pub where, you know, if the service at the pub is terrible and the beer is always flat and the floor is always sticky, that if somebody opens up a nicer pub that's cleaner with nicer people and people will go there, right? Like, that's the market making a decision. But hospitals are a huge financial investment. And there's not, I suspect, not really a need for there to be, say, two competing hospitals in a city the size of Delft. So it's really hard to kind of, like, leave this to the market, I think, to make these decisions. And also, I mean, people don't make great rational economic choice. I mean, there's an argument that people don't make great rational economic choices anyway. (laughs) But they really, I mean, you definitely uh, are not calling. You're just going to the nearest hospital. You're just going to go to the nearest hospital. I mean, you're certainly not calling around to see like where you can get the best deal or like checking online to see the reviews for who's got the best customer service rating if you've cracked your head open and you need a bunch of stitches. Yeah, that's the thing. And also, you know, a lot of the competition is obviously within the insurance system. You can 
you're encouraged to kind of change and switch and choose your insurer every year. But you don't usually make decisions when you're healthy that are the right decisions for when you're sick. You yeah. know, nobody is going to sit down. And if you're going to change your health insurer, you're going to look at the brochures in November, December and think, what insurance should I take out if I'm going to be diagnosed with cancer in April? But right. that could happen. Right. And then your circumstances completely change. So Yeah, yeah I mean, I went to the know. dentist on, on Monday. You guys have already heard this ridiculous story. And I have to have a bunch of dental work that's done. And it's not an emergency. So my dentist said to me, look, like it's November. Here is the estimate. Why don't you take this around and see what's the best way for you to get insurance before you have this done, which is fine. And this is like a, a lovely market pricing sort of situation. And now I can go forward and make my decision about which health insurance to buy for next year. But if I had discovered this in February and I couldn't wait, this would really like be a, a serious problem. And if I like just slipped and fell tomorrow and cracked my face open and like needed to go get dental surgery done, that was an emergency. You're not going to have a whole lot of time and like health, you know, mental space to sort of make rational economic decisions. So, you know, there has to be some sort of you know, government intervention to make sure that these, these systems work. And I think that that is a thing that, you know, even extremely right-wing, most extreme right-wing sort of, and by right-wing, I mean like, uh, not like anti-immigration, but sort of right-wing and the like, don't interfere in the market situation, market, yeah, yeah are, are pretty much on board with this for healthcare. I mean, I think, you know, you can get into an argument with people in the SPAY about what other things that you should, you know, maybe regulate more or less. But I mean, most people think that you should have access to healthcare and that you shouldn't die because like <laughs> your hospital is crap because you don't have yeah. another option. Yeah, I think it comes back to the fact that there's the actual opportunities for real sort of open market competition within something like healthcare are actually always going to be extremely limited and you have to have a balance between government inter intervention, regulation and public funding because they will always, you know, the system will always need public money to keep running. It's never going to be com completely dependent on private capital. And how do you regulate that yeah. and how do you make sure that uh, the service is always available accessible and available and and affordable yeah 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 and I, I mean i think also just kind of to to that point gordon that like we don't want i think i mean generally as a society i mean we do we do in america want poor people to die because they're poor but in but in, in america you, you you invest more public money in the healthcare system than any other country i know it's completely ridiculous thing. please yeah. let's just really not go there but coming i can't back to deal the with this coming, let's please focus on the netherlands which is like at least mostly a functioning democracy at the moment <laughs> you know you don't um you know we sort of have agreed as a society Society that like we don't want people who are disenfranchised. So even people who have like not purchased health care, health insurance, which is mandatory by law in this country, can still go to the hospital and get emergency care. They're not going to turn you away, you know, at the the hospital here because you've broken your leg, but you haven't bought health insurance for whatever reason, right? So you have to have some sort of mechanism in which even people who are not paying enough into the system, like, can get healthcare coverage. I mean, much in the same way. I'm sure that your wife did not pay sub enough into the Dutch healthcare system to even out what she took out no, of it. And, like, right, no. exactly. And, like, of course we don't want, you know, I, I don't think anyone wants this, like, for her to just have gotten kicked out of the hospital at the end because they were like, well, you haven't actually paid in what it is worth to pay out. So you have to have some kind of mechanism for sort of holding up the system. Absolutely. Because well, you've really much more simple and universal example you're giving me and the moment you're born you're born in a hospital yeah immediately you're in debt to the state because right. you know you haven't earned anything before your birth oh have god you? now you sound so, like a socialist gordon <laughs> honestly this is like when the boyfriend's friends come over and you're like arguing about that. You're, you're, the moment you're born you're, you're in born in debt to the state yeah. you're born in the chains of bondage yeah. uh, but yeah 
Yeah, no. But it's true. Yeah. (laughs) And also, like, hospitals should function and not go bankrupt. So, like, do something with this Dutch government. Yeah. That that seems to be the takeaway. I'm just curious to know what what they're going to do with it. I am also curious to see kind of what their plans are that they come up with. Yeah, well, um, on that note, to say that uh, about up to a number of companies, uh, possibly as many as 10, have expressed an interest in taking over these bankrupt Yeah, I was just going to ask, yeah. Yeah, so um, the health minister said uh, he he hasn't said how many of the bids are serious or viable, but there's a company called, or a group rather, called Cardiologie Centra Nederland, which runs a network of clinics who is reported to be the front runner to take over the ISOMI hospitals. They've even published a a plan on their website, actually, for how they'll do it. So they seem to be quite far advanced down the road. So there certainly seems to be hope for that uh, facility. On the face of it, I think that that was a perfectly viable hospital that just got into all sorts of trouble with this cancer drug. Yeah, unlike the Sotovart hospital. Sotovart hospital seems to have more deep-rooted problems. So we'll keep you up to date, obviously, on the podcast of of how things develop with, uh, with these two hospital groups. That's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can now send comments, compliments and abuse by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, you can subscribe to our feed, give the podcast a rating and share it. This week's episode has been sponsored by Coach. And if you want to find out more about them, they have a website and a podcast at coach, that's K-O-A-C-H dot net. My thanks to Molly Quell and Paul Peters. I'm Gordon Derrick and we'll be back next week. Thank you.